Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So last summer, we redesigned designobserver.com for the first time, oh, I think in about uh, about eight years, I think since Obama was elected the first time. And there was at least one moment in this process when I remember wishing that the site could just redesign itself. Wouldn't it be better if websites just made themselves? Now they do. It's called The Grid. The Grid, this is a new business called The Grid, uses artificial intelligence to build websites. Not people, but artificial intelligence. So some designers are concerned. Jessica, do you think they should be? Well, the grid is kind of the lingua franca of design for anyone who's ever designed something that is, needs to be legible, right? I mean, from magazines to books to, of course, websites. And, you know, I don't think they need to be concerned, but it's a bit of a game changer. What do you think? But don't we sort of have something like things like Squarespace out there that actually are do-it-yourself website things? How is this different, do you think? Right, but I think Squarespace really takes the point of view that the, the point of departure is visual and it's about templates. And templates are really about geometry. And the grid is something more. I mean, traditionally, the grid, for listeners who might not know, there's some wonderful books about the history of the grid and how the grid really comes out of letter forms and actually comes out of the height of the lowercase letter form and really is this kind of beautiful orchestration of, of an infrastructure that lets you make judgments about the placement of information against something that comes out of the very information itself. I think where this is scary and where it differs from Squarespace it is, is that it's artificial intelligence. It's that it presumes to second-guess you, to know what it is you need. And even though the video, which um, we'll put a link to on our website, makes a very compelling case, I think, for why you might want to do this, it's a little bit too much and too over-encompassing in its promise. And I think that's one of the things that makes people uncomfortable. Well, the modernist dream, in a way, had a lot to do with sort of designing systems that could render just through logic, inherent logic, form would follow function, and then uh, that form would actually not require human intervention in a way, even in terms of just old-fashioned graphic design. As you say, grids have been around for a while. Uh, Joseph Miller Brockman, uh, a Swiss designer, wrote the, you know, a, a fantastic, the Bible. the Bible on grid systems. And part of a very common exercise in those days would be to take a um, the advertising section of a small local newspaper and show what would happen if you just only used one typeface in two sizes and a single grid system to organize all the information. And I have to admit, it was just like this before and after that was quite startling. And and in those days, uh, seemed really like you were kind of wading into what was just this excessive and kind of out of control, um, random situation and just imposing order on it. And out of that order would come intelligibility, and out of that intelligibility would come understanding, and so everyone would benefit from it. And somehow, but it unspo- that what's startling, yeah. to, what's startling too, Michael, is that the the public would know what a grid is. Right, so a grid is really, it's almost a mathematical system. It's, its as you say, it's a visual logic. It's an armature for building something that has some kind of modular um, theory behind it. And, you know, those of us who went to design school had to learn it the old-fashioned way. The idea that it now functions as a manifestation of artificial intelligence feels like it might be missing 
the boat a little bit. I think I think its claims are lofty. It's kind of beautiful. It's it's it really it makes you want to actually go back to square one and remake everything you've ever made so that it participates <laughs> in that logic. But but I think that uh, that certainly the critics and many of them I think are UI UX people. Uh, one, of, one of the big criticisms is that, is that it's a little cumbersome. It loads very slowly. And because of these promises are so vast, it actually is not the most seamless and streamlined experience when you actually get into it. But the fact that it's called The Grid is, to me, the most intriguing of all. Because, again, just culturally, that, as you rightly say, Michael, has so much to do with the promises of the sort of the international style and of modernism and of the Bauhaus and of geometry solving the problem. One other thing, which I think is a trend that already is well underway, which is all websites sort of starting to look alike. There's this sort of process of the web design, uh, user experience design community, almost all in an in en masse kind of coming to a common agreement about what websites should look like. And part of it is dictated by technology, you know, uh, the, ne- the necessity to have responsive websites that work on different platforms and different devices. But then sort of there's, you know, the mode of address that um, one expects if you're reading, say, articles online. Um, you know, uh, nowadays sort of the, the, the very common thing of having a, a centered headline uh, that has kind of a... Um, a parallaxy kind of like relationship to a large uh, background photograph behind it. You pull up and there's a single kind of column of type that actually kind of scrolls and is interrupted every once in a while by large photographs in the middle and an occasional pull quote. The idea that um, uh, that these Where sites did come from? are. <laughs> Where did that all come from? It's so you're so right. It's like the the carousel, the fact that stuff moves left to right, the the yeah. x y axis. Stuff didn't look like that five six years ago. But I think part of it came out of the fact that um, if you're scrolling on a smartphone, you know that's you're seeing one column worth of information, and the idea that you could have anything more is just sort of not just you know, extra, but maybe extraneous. And so build it all from that case and you'll sort of get pretty much what I described. And really the only difference is at the very top is some sort of, um, you know, identifier for what sites you're on. And that's even getting less important now. You know, uh, so many of the websites that are out there now or so many of the experiences that are out there now are viewed within other environments. You know, you'll look at a, uh, a video on on Facebook and not even leave Facebook, but we'll just simply watch it on Facebook, let's say. So the idea that you're kind of going to a site and staying on a site and kind of exploring the site. And just but, to but think you'll be, looking at, you'll be looking at it soon on your watch. Yeah, I know, exactly. To me, I think there's a really huge question whether, uh, whether or not really the idea of quote-unquote designing websites is, you know, has a future. Um, Why would you know, it not just, have a future? Because it's just coming down to systems that are replicable where people, where the, the way you serve the needs of the content isn't to come up with a unique presentation that's tailored to specific media properties, but instead maybe go to the other extreme and do a unique presentation tailored to specific pieces of content and the actual, the fact that you're finding it on Design Observer or Vox or NewYorkTimes.com or but whatever not really it is. Any diff- that's not really any different than an identity system. And when you design an identity system, you're looking for that logo to feel the same, look the same, read the same, whether it's on a t-shirt or on the side of a truck. Yeah. Yeah, so but, this yeah. sort of, but, but here, I think what, it, what I find really unusual is that it's taken this long for grids to be a 
word in common parlance. I mean, in a sense, it should have been the first thing we looked to when we were looking to organize streams of information. But I think what's happening is because all, every designer who's worrying about that is responding to the exact parameters as every other designer who's worrying about that. All these designers are kind of colluding on all going to a central point where they all sort of look alike. And weirdly enough, you know, to a certain degree, why shouldn't they all look alike? You know, if you right. go if you go to a library, um, you know... The stacks look alike. Well, the stacks just don't look alike, but each book sort of has. So there's a common sort of way they present themselves. They are, they, you know, you hold, you know, they're bound on the left and the pages turn on the right here in, here in North America. And there's a, 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 there's a title page and, a, you know, a half title page, a title page, a table of contents, and then the book starts reading. And people say, well, you know, how boring. And the, But every once in a while you can kind of like completely overturn what the conventions are of what a book is. But most books sort of are predicated on the idea that people who are reading books aren't doing it to, uh, um, you know, aren't doing it to sort of like uh, um, have their minds blown about the medium that they're actually engaging with, but but instead to engage with the content and have the medium itself kind of fall to the background. And that may be very well happening with uh, websites today. You made the point a few minutes ago about how we access, for example, a newspaper. And I think it's scientifically been proven now that, that people look first at the picture, second at the headline, third at the caption, fourth at the dateline, fifth at the text. I mean, it makes complete sense, right? You think about this like the biggest thing, the most colorful thing, the boldest thing, the next boldest thing. That's how people navigate. And it's just like the system of opening a book and seeing the half title and the title. Designers, though, and design students in particular, look to really kind of rethink these things often. And, and I think that how you actually, if you're making a book that comes out as a website, if you're making a website that comes out as a video, you're not just thinking about how the grid can hold these things in check, you're thinking about what's the same and what's different, right? What's variable and what's constant? How can you keep making people interested? And how do you make people want to come back? I mean, that's really the other thing about a website. A book is a book, it's a it's a vehicle, it has information, it has a taxonomy. But presumably on the website, you can have something in kinetic, not just a video that moves, but information that changes over time. And one of the things that gets at is the short attention span of people and why we have listicles and why more people click on things where there's a bull and that comes right back to looking at the point of entry in a newspaper. So people aren't really that interesting. We're pretty boring. We guys sort of have the same habits. We want to know where to find something. We know how, want to know how to get in, get out, move on. So, um, you know, Jessica, uh, the Whitney Museum of Art is going to open in its new Renzo Piano Design headquarters on May 1st. And uh, Michael Kimmelman, the architecture critic of the New York Times, wrote and, and posted a, uh, and published uh, a review of the building and in its online incarnation, it's treated not as a typical New York Times story where you click on it and sort of takes you to headline at the top and then scroll to the text with an occasional picture, but it's given a full-blown treatment by the amazing graphics and interaction design people at the thenewyorktimes.com so that you're able to do fly-throughs of the building. This is like Harry Potter, right? When the newspapers I, I, come to life? Uh, yeah, it, absolutely. I, I mean, we are there. But I, I wonder, to a certain degree, does the exuberance of all these graphics sort of make it more difficult for a writer like Kimmelman to sort of function as a critic? And by that, I mean, it sort of is, I mean, no matter what he's saying in the text, and he, and he actually is he's largely... Uh, enthusiastic about the building and about its architecture and about its design. But 
Very different from the days when someone like uh, Ada Louise Huxtable or um, Lewis Mumford writing uh, the Skyline column in the uh, New Yorker would have written this very kind of like closely argued paragraph one, paragraph two assessment of a piece of architecture and accompany it with like these really kind of mesmerizing, flashy, seductive images is really, I mean, is really what you, if you go to a condo website in your town, you may see some of those same kind of images trying to sell you a condominium. I don't know, does it sort of uh, undermines the, the critical distance just by making the imagery so fun and seductive and appealing? How can you not love this building? Also, he actually references Ada Louise Huxtable in the one non-kinetic visual part of this article, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in which oh, the images are all black and white. Oh, and they're, no, they're these beautiful, but yes, beautiful. exactly, beautiful, so a beautiful little, uh, like, relatively static carousel of Ezra Stoller, black and white photographs of the original Marcel Breuer building. And I, and I have to admit, I just kind of, I saw that and I was like, oh, architecture with a capital A, you know, you're, we're not flying through it, we're not kind of like uh, Harry Potter, instead we're just sort of seeing yeah, there's these... Exact, I have the same reaction. Maybe, maybe it's because we're old, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I know we are old. I mean, Kimmelman is a, Kimmelman is a great writer. He's a really visual writer. Uh, he writes very tersely written, kind of beautifully articulated visual things. He's a really visual writer. Um, and, he, and he writes at the beginning of this piece about what excites him about this building is, is its function, its role. He really cites it in New York. Like, yeah, yeah. this is what it looks like from the east and from the west, and at this time of day and at that time of day. And I think that that kind of visual writing is very evocative in concert with these kinds of images. Yeah. That said, I think you're absolutely right, Michael, because you're competing with this incredibly seductive um, mechanism, which is the fly-through, and, and I almost feel like, um, you know how on NPR, before they do a, a report on something that might be disturbing to younger viewers, I almost <laughs> feel like we should have a, a, a shout-out to anyone yeah. who has vertigo, because it, it, it's really, it's, it's quite disorienting to be looking at, at this text and then see these other things. Yeah, um, but, hey, but I, I want to say one more thing, though. Um, the way we think about architecture has always been so informed by the way it's visually represented, because our ideas about buildings are formed ideally by our firsthand experience of them, but often we don't have a firsthand experience. And sometimes, even when we do have that firsthand experience, some visual representation of the building is still the, the, the one that dominates. You know, we see now a future where architecture may be represented by this much more potentially elaborated experience that uh, can work you know, in 3D, across time, all sorts of different ways. And I, I suspect that's all for the good. One of the uh, striking things about the new Whitney, which um, it hasn't opened yet, and I haven't been lucky enough to sneak in there prior to this opening. Have you been there, Jessica? I have not. Okay, so we'll be back with a full report on our experience of it firsthand. But what's interesting about it, just looking at it from the outside, is that it's... Um, uh, it's unequivocally a um, you know a piece of modern architecture, but it has, it has almost a very informal sort of composition when seen from the outside. There, you know, in a way, it sort of is a little reminiscent of Marcel Breuer's uh, form of modernism, where it's you know an object that that in and of itself is of interest, but you can tell that Piano and his studio were very very conscious of all these different views that Kimmelman talks about, and the fact that it's relating both to the waterfront and that it sort of looks like a ship, the fact that it's kind 
kind of connecting with um, the elevated park, the High Line, uh, and so it has a view that sort of reveals itself as you're walking down that way. And then the way it'll interact from the inside to the city as a whole, it's all really interesting. And it's all working within um, pianos, very structural, very architectonic language of glass and steel. It's really interesting to watch him take that structure, which in effect is the kind of grid structure we've been talking about so far, and manipulate it in a way that seems fresh and new and unexpected. And I think the question that always comes up is, what's the relationship between imposed structure and what we as human beings can do with it? And I think here's a demonstration of that. This episode of The Observatory is sponsored by Blurb, which is collaborating with Design Observer on the Thesis Book Project. Designers can use Blurb's plugin for Adobe InDesign to make their thesis books or any other professional quality books or magazines. Print one copy at a time, get it delivered in 7 to 11 days. And from now through the end of May, you can save 20% if you use the promo code OBSERVATORY. Learn more at blurb.com InDesign. Hey Jessica, can you talk a little bit about the thesis book project, which is underway now and uh, something that I'm really excited about, and I know you are as well. So for many years now as an educator, I have uh, participated in final juries at schools uh, throughout the United States and abroad, where typically students uh, present their work when they're graduating, that all too quickly after the obligatory final review go off into the library never to be seen again. We want to change that. So the idea is Students upload their final degree books to Blurb. Once they have done so, they put a short preview of the book on our site. The microsite is called thesisbookproject.com. And over time, these books can become shared with a much wider audience, Design Observer's audience, other educators, other scholars, other students, other designers. And anybody wanting a copy of any of the books presented can push a button, link back to Blurb, and buy the book. Blurb, I think, is, it's worth pointing out, it's not just for designers, it's for everyone. And so what these students can do through the thesis book project is an example and kind of a very uh, beautifully conceived and well thought out example of what these days nearly anyone uh, with access to some simple computer tools can do nowadays, which is to make a book on their own. And this idea of people, people who love books, being able to not just buy other people's books and read them, but somehow contribute to their own, has roots going all the way back, if you ask me, to a very simple thing that we all know from our childhoods, which is a uh, coloring book. Have you heard this thing where there's a uh, Scottish woman named Joanna Basford who's put together a coloring book called The Secret Garden that has sold one and a half million copies so far? I have indeed. (laughs) Um, what, I mean, what? It, and this is for adults, you know. It's coloring books for adults. Why do it adults... It is indeed. And I'm <laughs> yeah. very critical of this. Oh, really? What, yeah, am I allowed to be critical on our, on our podcast, Michael? I know you're, you probably... Do you, I don't know. What do you think about it? Before, before I jump into my, my harsh criticism of Joanna Basford and her no, laughing no, yeah, over to the back. No, no, you be... Um, you, be you talk first. I'll come back with my um, defense, such as it is. Well... Um, I, I posted, I think, on Twitter uh, that this was the end of civilization as we know it. And somebody <laughs> quickly responded to me very thoughtfully and said, you know, it's beautiful and apparently it decompresses all kinds of stress. How can that be bad for civilization? Excellent point. Um, I think, in my humble opinion, that this is what I call the build-a-bear workshop method of innovation. 
is that you give people tools to fill in. It's the it's to me the meaningless uh, visual grammar of what I was critical of when I wrote scrapbooks, and which I also got a lot of flack for. But it's not original. It's not, yes, it, you're enabling people to relax by coloring things in. And the books themselves, make no mistake, they're really beautiful. But as a phenomenological thing, in terms of where we're going as a civilization, I do not find this worthy of selling the number of copies that it's sold. And of course, it flies in the face of what we were just <laughs> talking about, which is an original idea. And although although people say, and it is true, and we will make reference to this, I think, in our next podcast, this wonderful new manifesto by Hella Yongarius, who says that, you know, you cannot start with a blank page. And she's right. I do think in our field, and as educators and mentors and designers and thinkers and theorists, this can't be good. It can't oh, no, be great. Oh, come, come on. Um, a blank page is um, exciting to some, but honestly terrifying to most. They sort of, uh, they need a starting point. In fact, we were talking earlier just about, you know, um, uh, the grid with a capital, uh, with lowercase g and with a capital G as both a, a, a traditional way of organizing design material and yeah, now, see, a, if she a had made product. A, if she had made a coloring book of grids, I would have loved it. <laughs> That I would have loved. I would have been championing yeah, it. Absolutely. It's that it's that it's this kind of kind of twee sort of William Morris inspired kind of it's flowery kind of it's beautiful kind of it's not there's so many things that could have been the idea itself is fascinating to me. That people would not face the blank page, that you would actually give them something to start, that you would give them something to incubate, that you would create some kind of visual catalyst for somebody to start to make something. That I get. It's the coloring book that's that's pretty and, and full of little leaves I don't get. Let me let me try to defend it in another way then. I do th- agree with your Twitter respondent who said, what's wrong with a little bit of a, of meditative therapeutic kind of hand-eye coordination oriented things just to start or end your day and I and I, I, I think there's a couple things with that one is that um, there is something really great about giving people a way in to engage with the world of creativity even if it's got multiple training wheels on it even if it has um, you know uh, borders completely surrounding it even if it is as you call it twee um, but I do think habituating kind of um, uh, working with your hands um, and making something, helping to make something is really a good thing. I'm doing another version of the 100 Days Project. We've talked about that before. And um, and I'm drawing my – I'm a right-handed person. And I'm drawing my left hand every day for 100 days. And uh, there's something dumb and wrote about it. You know, there's no creativity in the conception of what I'm going to do. I sort of like sit down at some part during the day kind of take some uh, drawing instrument in my right hand and look at my left hand and try to render it. And I have to admit it varies whether or not I've, uh, I'm tired or energetic or had something to drink or um, am hungry. So there's something really open and quote-unquote creative about it, but in many ways it is just like a coloring book. And I would argue it's totally different, and I'll tell you why I think that. I think that because you yourself have set the parameters. You have decided that you're going to draw one line every day for the next year, or you're going to draw your left hand every day for the next hundred days. You have made that discerning choice to figure out what the parameters are. And in a sense, this is exactly what the grid is. The grid gives you structure so that you can explode with freedom. So you want to do it with crayons one day and you want to do it with charcoal the next, that's your choice. But where it's limited 
is in the making of the hand. By giving somebody a coloring book where all the lines are already drawn, they're not setting any of those parameters. And that's what I think is a stultifying creative exercise. And that's why I call it Build-A-Bear Workshop, because the minute you create the smorgasbord, that's the creative part to me, that you're actually deciding what the variables are. In a sense, this comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation today. It comes back to the grid. That part of the problem that I think some designers are having with the idea that the grid makes the grid for you is that the making of the grid is the whole point. Well, I mean, I remember one time I um, uh, was talking to my sister-in-law. She does crossword puzzles, too. And I said, well, what I like about this is that I feel like it's making me smart. And she says, no, it's just a waste of time that sort of feels intelligent. But it's actually, you know, I don't know if that makes you any smarter at all. And so I don't know. I think there's just something about doing something contemplative where it's you and your hand and your mind. And sometimes your mind can kind of drift away as it is, I imagine, as a, as a must when you're kind of just simply coloring in a coloring book. Other times you're actively probing as when you're doing a really complicated crossword puzzle. There's some usefulness to it. There's some, there's some part of you that you're touching that remains untouched otherwise. So I'm reluctant, I'm reluctant to go as far as you're going and sort of saying that uh, coloring books for adults, for children, for anyone are, um, are inherently bad or useless. I do think as a point, maybe just I don't just think they're bad or useless. I think that it, we're, we're um, elevating the reward that we receive from them too quickly and not actually probing deeper to understand what it is we're getting from this. And I, I think it is infantilizing because I think it's too easy. And I think if what's it, the conversation to be had is what is it people need and what is it that we can make to give them what they need in a way that is useful? And I, and I think you know, and I think history will bear this out that culturally we're living in a moment when everybody is a maker. And if everybody is a ma- if everybody is a maker, then why are we making things for them to just remake? Well, I agree. People love making things, and not everyone has the time, resources, or imagination to make something from scratch. And this reminds me a little bit of the story I've heard, perhaps apocryphal, about when uh, Duncan Hines or some commercial manufacturer first introduced cake mix into the American kitchen in uh, you know in the 40s or 50s, and they were testing sort of the idea that this is just a box, and you just would simply empty the box, uh, stir in a little bit of um, milk and water and then put in a pan, put in the oven, then a cake would come out. So none of the laborious work that it would used to take to make a cake uh, was involved with it. And it tested really, really badly with consumers when they had them in laboratories. And they were just saying, oh, I, I really don't like this. And they found that in order to make it uh, work, all you had to do was change one thing, which is make require the uh, uh, the person in the kitchen to, to um, add an egg. To an egg, add a single add egg, an egg to it. You know, they've right. heard this story. Yeah, I've and read so, this story. It's true. And it once you so added the egg, yeah. you fi- no, it probably is true that you felt like you were actually like doing doing cooking. yeoman's work. <laughs> I'm, I'm a baker it's now. It's called you know? cooking. Yeah, right. it's yeah, now I'm baking because I'm actually cracking an egg and putting it into it. And without that, it just it does seem kind of thing. So there's a fine line between uh, making, baking, faking. Um, I can't think of the fourth thing, but um, coloring books and coloring books, which doesn't rhyme, but I think it's quite true and apropos. 
Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. There you can find links to things we discussed today, including Michael Kimmelman's extraordinary illustrated review of the new Whitney Museum in New York. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of the show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to the Observatory on SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to Blurb for sponsoring this episode of the Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.